Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, that's the text for this morning. The sermon title is, Let Your Requests Be Made Known to God. Of course, that's not original. Paul said that, right? He encouraged us to let our requests be made known to God, which is exactly what Jesus does in our text for this morning. Our text this morning brings us to the second half of what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. You remember a couple of weeks back I mentioned that uh, it has aptly also been described as the Disciples' Prayer because it's a prayer that Jesus himself would have never prayed. He was instructing his disciples. He was giving them a model or a skeleton, so to speak, which they could hang their own words on and come before the Lord in prayer. But I mentioned a couple of weeks back that Jesus' model prayer is divided into two very distinct parts. The first part, contained in verses 9 and 10, has to do with prayer as it is in relation to our praying for God's glory. Jesus instructed us, if you have your Bible open there, just look back at verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To your name be glory. We extol your great name. We ascribe to your great name the glory that it is due. Jesus goes on and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the emphasis on these two verses is exalting the God's name, exalting uh, our submission to God's rule and his kingship and our glad acceptance of God's will. And I would even go further and say, in an ultimate sense, this prayer calls us to the hastening of God's eternal reign. That's eternity future. Not only that God's kingdom would come here, but a a hastening of, Lord, come, let your kingdom come now. A hastening of God's kingdom in an ultimate sense, here and now, where God's name will be perfectly exalted, where his kingship will be altogether uncontested, and his sovereign desires or his will will have reached their glorious and redemptive fulfillment. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That your name would be set up as ultimately glorious, that your reign would be uncontested, and that your will would reach its sovereign and ultimate fulfillment. What a high and lofty prayer the captain of our salvation instructs us to pray here in verses 9 and 10, the first part of the disciples' prayer. The second part of the disciples' prayer here, the second part of Jesus' model prayer, which we turn our attention to now this morning, focuses on our praying for our frail needs as dependent creatures. Look here, beginning in verse 11, Jesus instructs us to pray for daily bread. He instructs us to pray for the forgiveness of our sin as well as a corresponding forgiving spirit towards others. And then he encourages us to pray for power to overcome temptation that is present in this Genesis 3 fallen world. Not a one of us is exempt from the temptation of living in this fallen world. And each of these three requests reveal our utter dependence upon God for the least of our needs to the greatest of our needs. From our daily bread to our being held in the moment of temptation that we would not fall. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. We'll read verses 9 through 15, the prayer in its entirety this morning, but our study will confine us specifically to verses 11 through 15. Matthew, recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins the following words. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands fixed forever. You may be seated. Before we say anything about these three following petitions in verses 11 through 15, individually, let me say a word about them generally. Let your eyes just kind of glance there, back at verses 11 through 15. And as you do, take note of the fact that it's very interesting that every single one of our frail, creaturely needs is summed up in these three requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then third, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, every part of life, the whole of life, great things, small things, spiritual things, material things, inward things, outward things, are all contained in these three requests. I mean, if you think about it, in such a small compass and with relatively few words, Jesus has covered the entire life of the believer in these three requests. The body is remembered. When Jesus speaks about we need bread, we need daily bread. The soul is remembered. When Jesus encourages us or instructs us to pray, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our sin before you. And the spirit is remembered. And that God would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we're tempted, he'll provide a way of escape so that we can stand up under it. You know, the sad reality is that a good portion of our prayers are only concerned with the most temporary of these three parts, the body. The majority of our prayers, I would venture to say, are sadly centered around the most temporary of these three aspects of the human life, the body. I mean, the soul and the spirit are are of infinitely greater value because they will live on forever. We'll receive a new body if we know Christ at the resurrection of the dead. But so often the things that concern us on a day-to-day basis are those things which relate to that which is most temporary in this world to begin with. There's nothing in the entire realm of Scripture, I think, that so plainly shows our utter dependence upon God, as does Jesus' model prayer here for us, especially the three requests that are before us this morning. I have three points on your outline this morning. would encourage you again to take notes. Number one, if you are, is this. Jesus' model prayer teaches us that we should have great dependence upon God for our physical provision. We are completely and utterly dependent upon God for our physical provision. Look back at verse 11. Jesus instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. What does this teach us? It teaches us to acknowledge that we are completely, utterly, entirely dependent upon God to supply us with everything we need. You know, one of, my, one of the shows that I enjoy watching from time to time, I, I hear this line, and it's so-and-so is a self-made whatever, self-made millionaire. They've done it themselves. They've picked themselves up by their own bootstraps, and now they have this company that's worth whatever kajillion dollars. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no self-made individual. Because there is nothing that we have that was not given to us. 
even unbelievers. The sun rises and the rain falls both on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God's common grace, his common goodness towards all men, both believers and unbelievers. But there is no self-made individual. We have nothing that was not given to us. And Paul says, then why do you boast as if it wasn't given to you? We do that often, do we not? And I would say that probably one of the, re- one of the ways, rather, that we boast uh, in, in what we have as, as something generated by ourselves or for ourselves instead of that being given to us by God is our lack of thankfulness. Just a simple, sheer lack of thankfulness is a brash, arrogant blow to the sovereign who alone opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living creature. What do you have that you were not given? So Jesus instructs us, pray like this then. Pray, Father. Remember, we're praying, Father. That's intimacy in heaven, transcendent. He's other than. Give us this day our daily bread. Seems like a simple, straightforward request, does it not? But I would submit to you that there is more to be learned in this short sentence than we may assume. As a matter of fact, this this verse, specifically the words, our daily bread, are among some of the most difficult words in the Bible to translate. Interestingly enough, these three words, our daily bread, are among some of the most difficult words in the entire Bible to accurately translate. Many views as to how these words are best translated. Let me just give you one way that they've been mistranslated. Some of our early church fathers, Jerome and some others, if you, if you read church history, which I would encourage you to read church history, if you, if you don't have a volume, not that you need Philip Schaff's 15, 13 volumes on church history, though I would commend it to your library. If you don't have one volume uh, that is well written by a respectable author concerning church history, get one. If you have questions on what's a good one, come and ask me and I'll point several out to you. Church history is important. But some of our early church fathers, Jerome and some others, they spiritualized this verse to mean the bread of communion. The bread of communion. They had a hard time making the transition from the heavenward positions of verse 9 and 10 from, from the glory of God and the reign of God and the rule of God and the will of God to now abruptly transition that to the, to the frail creaturely needs that we have. They had a real hard time just making that distinction. And so they spiritualized verse 11 here. Give us this day our daily bread as meaning the bread of communion. Matter of fact, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation flows out of this incorrect, spiritualized interpretation. And one of the fundamental rules of biblical interpretation, or biblical hermeneutics, and this is important for you, when, when, when you hear words like hermeneutics, like that's not just for seminary students, that's not just for pastors, that's not just for theologians, uh, okay? The word hermeneutics is for you, and it just means the science of accurately interpreting God's word. We need to be great and growing as, as students who understand uh, how to interpret God's word, that we, that we have a good set of hermeneutics, a good set of controls or rules that we approach Scripture with when we seek to understand its meaning. Let me give you one fundamental biblical rule of interpretation or of hermeneutics here. You ready for this? When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you have nonsense. It's important. File that, Okay. Put, put that back there in a file, and don't let it leave, okay? When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you have nonsense, okay? There have been many, many heresies uh, that, that have been uh, raised in our uh, modern culture, our modern uh, church culture, 
because we have left the plain sense of Scripture and we've sought to read into it that which it never could have meant to its original author. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that we're to take every word of Scripture and its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context clearly indicate otherwise. Okay? This verse means exactly what it says. In other words, God wants us to be praying for our physical provision. Our Father, Daddy, Abba Father, the one who is near to me, the one who is close to me, give us this day our daily bread. Now you think back to Jesus' day here. In Jesus' day, a laborer was commonly paid each day for the work that he had accomplished that day. Furthermore, the pay that they frequently received was so low that it was nearly impossible to save any of what they made. And so as a result, a day's pay oftentimes only purchased a day's food. And so while this verse may not hit us with as much weight as it would have those in Jesus' day, I think there's much that we can learn from it. I mean, we live in a world of superabundance, and that's by God's sheer grace. I mean, if uh, the, the psalmist tells us if God removed his spirit from us, we would return to dust, okay? I mean, if, if God didn't send rain like he graciously did about two hours ago, the ground would dry up and we would not eat. But we forget that. We forget that in the world of abundance in which we live. And so we look at this verse and we say, give us this day our daily bread. Man, I got six weeks of bread in the freezer. I mean, I got, I got three quarters of a cow in plastic Ziploc baggies in the freezer. What do you, you know, we just have a hard time understanding the weight that this would have carried in Jesus' day. We live in a lack-for-nothing culture. Let's look at these words here. Let's just kind of walk through the phrase for a brief moment here. Give us. What does this say about our dependence upon God? Just those two simple words there, give us. These two little words remind us that our most basic needs are not the result of unaided effort. Okay, again, no one is self-made. Everything we have is a gift from above. James reminds us, do not be deceived, brothers. Don't, don't, don't be deceived. Every good gift, every good and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above, right? Coming down from the Father of lights. Likewise, David said in Psalm 145, he said, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. Open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Friends, may we never, never, never take for granted or claim for ourselves what God has graciously provided. What arrogance. But we do it so often when we lack thankfulness. When we lack thankfulness. Those two little words give us, they remind us that our most basic needs are not the result of unaided effort. How about this day? Two more little words. Give us this day. What does that tell us about tomorrow? These words teach us that if we're to live as God intends for us to live, we're to live one day at a time. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to save. It doesn't mean that we're not to think for the future. As a matter of fact, you'd look back at Proverbs and you would look at the example of the ant, right? Who, who labors and toils to store up so that in the lean times there is something to eat, there is something to be provided for. But these words here, this day, they teach us that we are to live one day at a time. In other words, that is, we aren't to fret about tomorrow or to be anxious about an unknown future. Aren't we often, though? Don't we often get wound up tighter than an eight-day clock thinking about tomorrow? And the worries and the concerns of tomorrow, 
Matter of fact, let me just tell you a familiar passage to you. Your, your adversary, the devil, he, he roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, what's the last word in the sentence? Devour. What do you think of when you think of the word devour? We think of what we see on the learning channel, right? We think of some lion that is absolutely going into dinner, right? Devouring it, consuming it, as, as in there's nothing left when he's done. Did you know that that's probably not the best imagery for that text? The word devour there has the idea of consuming with the cares of the day. To be consumed with the cares of the day. To be worried and uptight and anxious about tomorrow. Because Satan knows he's cunning and he's crafty, right? If he can just get your eyes fixed on yourself, worried about tomorrow, fretting about tomorrow and what may be and what may come and will I have enough and will I be able to eat and will I have a job and then where are your eyes not? They're not upward. They're not heavenward. I think so much of Satan's cunning, crafty, scheming desires isn't so much overt as it is covert. It's just to do anything to keep your eyes on you and subsequently to keep them off of the captain of your salvation. They just keep you worried. Being worried... It's, it's like a rocking chair, right? It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. And we're going we're, we're we're to take some time here in the coming weeks uh, because Jesus is going to teach us at length about worry uh, in the coming texts. But if we're to live as God intends us to live, we're to live one day at a time, moment by moment dependence upon God. I mean, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 16, he said, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion for every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. He'll provide. He hasn't promised to provide for all of your wants. Okay, Philippians 4, right? And my God will supply all your what? That's right. Don't ever forget that, friends. He's promised to provide dinner, not the dessert. Now, in his graciousness, he oftentimes does provide us with lavish abundance, with far more than we need, even a lot of the things that we just want and desire that aren't in themselves inherently sinful. So give us, reminds us that our most basic needs are not the result of unaided effort. This day, Reminds us that we're living moment by moment dependence upon God. How about our daily here? How much should we expect God to provide for us? Again, daily bread. If, if this prayer was prayed in the morning, then, then it would mean, Lord, pr- provide for us bread for this day. And if this same prayer was prayed in the evening time, it would simply mean, Lord, provide for us tomorrow, tomorrow's bread. This is a petition that God would meet our daily needs. Now, how about the word bread? Okay, What should we expect God to provide for us? Again, friends, this is the necessities of life. Food, clothing, work. This isn't a Psalm 37 for free-for-all. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Just fill in the blank. It's like a blank check. It's not how God works here. Okay, This is not a Psalm 37 for free-for-all. 
Again, Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God doesn't request us or encourage us or teach us to pray for all of our wants. He instructs us to pray and he promises to provide or supply for all of our needs. For all of our needs. As I was thinking about this text in my study this week, it dawned on me as I was thinking about this simple little one-sentence passage here, just the fatherly concern of God. Again, our Father, nearness, who is in heaven, transcendent, other than, set apart. What, what is man that you are mindful of him, David said in Psalm 8. And one of the most wonderful things in Scripture is that the God who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, who is self-existent and not dependent upon anyone, who is from eternity to eternity, the God who is forming his eternal kingdom and will usher it in finally at the end, the God who made heaven and earth and calls the stars out at night by name and orders them in their course, the God who the nations are like a drop in a bucket before him and accounted as dust on the scales, that same infinite, omnipotent, sovereign God who needs nothing and is perfectly content in and of himself is prepared to consider your and my little needs. Wow. Wow. When I look at your heavens, David says, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you set in place, what is mine that you're manful of him? What is the son of man that you would care for him? You see, part of the greatness of our God lies in his descending to meet us where we are. When we come to him, friends, with our little things, I think we do him great honor. When we come to him with our our seemingly insignificant requests, just for bread for today, I think we do him great honor. Even the supposedly trivial matters of life are important to God. Not even a sparrow, which two were sold for a penny, Matthew tells us, falls to the ground apart from his knowledge. And yet Jesus tells us that we are of much more value than they. Indeed, there's not a hair on your head that Jesus isn't concerned about, as a matter of fact. The smallest and the most trivial details of your life and my life are known to him and taken into consideration by him as he sits this very moment on his everlasting throne. What need do you have that he can't provide for? There isn't one. There isn't one. Number two on your outline. Jesus instructs us to pray in a way that shows our dependence upon God for forgiveness. Look at verses 12, but we're going to deal with verses 14 and 15 in here together. So, Move 13 kind of out of your sight for just a second. We're going to deal with it separately here in a moment. Verses 12 and then 14 and 15. Dependence upon God for forgiveness. This is what Jesus says. He instructs us to pray and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does Jesus teach us here? 
He teaches us that we're sinners, and as such, we are in need of daily forgiveness. That's what Jesus teaches us in these three verses here. You see, sin is pictured by Jesus in this prayer as a debt. And when sin occurs, a debt must be discharged. It must be forgiven. It must be paid for. You've heard me say this before, but I think it bears repeating. God never just forgives. Forgiveness always comes on the basis of someone standing in our place, discharging the debt for us. In other words, forgiveness cannot take place unless someone, that someone is Jesus, the captain of our salvation, stands in our place as our substitute and pays our debt for us. God sweeps no debt under the rug. He doesn't erase it off the books and forget as if it ever happened. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. All debts must be paid. All accounts will be settled. Friends, I'll tell you this. There is coming a day where Jesus Christ will rid this earth of every last remaining particle of sin. His holiness demands it. And for those who know Christ will spend eternity in heaven. Because Jesus uttered from the cross, John chapter 19, it is finished. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ, hear this lovingly, hear this graciously, but hear it with all the force in which it comes. You will pay. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will take vengeance upon my adversary, declares the Lord. That sink in for a moment. Reminds me of the old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus teaches us here that when we pray, we should be asking for forgiveness as well as requesting a forgiving spirit. God, forgive me of my sin, but, but also, or subsequently, or in a corresponding manner, give me a forgiving spirit towards others. You see, this is an explicit prayer for forgiveness, but there's an implicit prayer for a forgiving spirit here in verse 12. The ideal prayer or the model prayer that Jesus gives us contains a petition or request for them both. Let's talk about this phrase here, forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins. There's two types of forgiveness. Think about that for a minute. Two types of forgiveness. There is a judicial forgiveness, and there is a paternal forgiveness. I'll explain. Judicial forgiveness, that speaks to our justification. That's the legal transaction, where at conversion, God declares us not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared innocent, to be declared not guilty. That's judicial forgiveness. It takes place once and for all at conversion. It means positionally, the way that God views us, is holy, spotless, without blame or defect. Okay? It's judicial forgiveness. On the basis of the fact that Jesus stood as our representative and our substitute when he bore God's wrath on Calvary's cross. But what forgiveness does Jesus have in view here in verse 12? I would submit to you that he has in view here what has commonly been referred to as paternal forgiveness. This is the daily forgiveness of sin that maintains our unobstructed fellowship with God. 
Jesus' model prayer reminds us that we're indeed sinful, and then he teaches us that we are to engage in daily, ongoing confession of sin. I've already been forgiven in an ultimate sense, but my, my daily sin, and I sin by both omission and commission, right? When I sin by commission, I, I commit sin. I do that which God has explicitly told me not to do. I trespass. I step over the line. We, we see the sign posted on the fence post there on the tree. It says, no trespassing, and we do this. Right? That's commission. We also sin by omission. In other words, we don't do that which God has explicitly told us to do in Scripture. Okay, we're sinful. And we need to ask the Lord to forgive us of our, of our daily sin, that, that there wouldn't be an obstruction uh, that stands in between our, our, our fellowship with the Lord. That's that paternal forgiveness that Jesus is encouraging us to pray for here in verse 12. And John tells us, right, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, is he not? Oh, yes, he is. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The forgiveness that that Jesus has in view here in verse 12 is the forgiveness with which he spoke to Peter about when he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Just don't turn there. Just think with me. After supper, here's the picture, Jesus sitting with his disciples After supper, Jesus poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he came to our brother, Simon Peter. Oh, Peter, we're more like him than we are not like him. We're more similar than we are dissimilar, are we not? Oh, Peter, here he is. When he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, may it never be. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, you don't now understand, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And then the light bulb went on for Peter, did it not? Peter says, then Lord, not wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And here's, here's the kicker. Here's what I want you to get here. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed, okay, that's judicial forgiveness, that's, that's justification. The one who has bathed, the one who has come to Christ, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Okay, feet. We have daily instances where feet get out of hand in our lives. And they need to be washed. They need to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so we come to God and we say, forgive us our debts, Lord. Forgive us our sin. I don't want anything to stand in between. I don't want anything to hinder my relationship with you. And then he goes on and he says here, as we have forgiven our debtors. This assumes two things here. It assumes, first of all, that we are indeed forgiving others. Are you? It's a challenge, right? It's real easy to accept forgiveness from another and then to turn right around and hold another's debts over their head. I mean, we see parable after parable in the New Testament. As we forgive our debtors, it assumes that we forgive, but secondly, it assumes that God expects us to forgive others. It is an expectation that we be forgiving others. I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you ever need to know the 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 measure with which you need to be ready to forgive another, all you need to do is look at the cross. 
to forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven me. He pursued me. He came after me. And he justified me. And he's forgiven me. Therefore, I am to be forgiving to others whose offenses to me pale in comparison to my offenses before my Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said, unless you've forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant. Because actually what we're praying here is, Lord, treat me like I'm treating this person. Lord, forgive us our debts. Treat me as I'm forgiving this individual. Right? And so if we pray this prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sin, without having a forgiving spirit towards others, we're actually saying, Lord, don't forgive me for my sin. You see the contradiction there? We're all guilty. Every single one of us without exception, myself included. We're all guilty. True forgiveness breaks the heart of a man or breaks the heart of a woman such that he or she becomes a forgiving individual. We're not called to forgive other people's sins provided they're not too frightful or too big or too gross or too heinous. We're to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, or however however often they are repeated. This is the thing that Jesus comments on here in verses 14 and 15. Let your eyes drop back there. This is Jesus' P.S. to verse 12. Verses 14 and 15 are, are the, the, the P.S. or the, the postscript here, the appendix to what he's already said in verse 12. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the Savior's own commentary on our petition to God for forgiveness. And it's the only one of the petitions uh, on which Jesus speaks to or gives any added insight. When Jesus does that, our ears ought to perk up. We ought to listen. When, When Jesus speaks in and he commentates here, and this is the only one of the petitions that he adds additional insight into, our ears ought to perk up. We ought to be listening, listening very carefully. Jesus is saying, That if we think our sins are forgiven by God, and yet we refuse to forgive others, it very well may be that we are mistaken concerning the validity of our own salvation. If we think that God has forgiven us, yet we have a hard and obstinate, unforgiving spirit towards others, it very well may be that we are confused as to the validity of our own salvation. The man who knows that he's been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is a man who without option or a woman who without option must forgive others. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, if we really know Christ as our Lord and Savior, our hard hearts have been broken and we cannot refuse forgiveness for others. If you're refusing forgiveness to anyone, I suggest that you have never been forgiven yourself. I say to the glory of God and in utter humility, this is Jones, that whenever I see myself before God and I realize even something, even something, he says, of my own sin and what the Lord has done for me in forgiving me, I cannot but be ready to forgive another.
Woe is me, Isaiah said. I'm ruined because my eyes have seen the king. When we see ourselves in right relation to God, we see how heinous and vile we really are. We see how great a salvation has really been bestowed upon us. And then the offenses of others begin to pale in comparison. How you doing there, friends? How you doing there? I would suggest that in a room this size with this many people, it's very possible that there are some grudges that are harbored. Deal with it. And deal with it quickly. Leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. Don't come and engage in all that's spiritual and put the mask on and play the game and do the dance and jump through the hoops. No. Go, go be made right with your brother or your sister and then come. There's an urgency there. We're never more like God than when, we're for, than when we are forgiving others. Number three, Jesus' model prayer instructs us to pray in such a way that shows our dependence on God for power over temptation. For power over temptation. Look at verse 13. Back up to the middle of the text there. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does Jesus teach us here? He teaches us that each and every one of us, without exception, are liable at all times to be led astray and to fall. Not a one of us is exempt from being liable at any moment in time to falling to sin's temptation. In other words, we're not as strong as we would like to think that we are. There's a great danger in the pious thinking that assumes that we are too strong to stumble and fall. Matter of fact, pride goes before a what? A fall. Pride goes before a fall. Let's look at this phrase here briefly. Lead us not into temptation. Temptation. It's the Greek noun here, pirasmos. Its basic meaning is to test. To test. But when it's used of Satan's testing of believers with a view to their failing the test, then it comes to mean or comes to have the idea of temptation. You see, at face value, this seems like a strange request. To ask God to keep us from temptation might be, more underly, might be more easily understood, but to ask that God not lead us into temptation, that's a bit more challenging. Think about that for a moment. To ask God to keep us from temptation, that's a bit easier to understand for us, but to ask that God not lead us into temptation, that's a bit more difficult. How do we wrestle with that? How do, we, how do we grapple with that? Well, I think we have to ask the question, answer the question, does God lead us into temptation? Does God tempt us? What does James tell us in James chapter 1? Everybody take your head and go like this. Uh-uh. No, he doesn't. James teaches us. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, where does it come from then? James tells us, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. Think fish here, think bait. Think dangling little shiny hooks, okay? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where temptation comes from. You see, while God doesn't tempt us to sin, I would would submit to you that he does test us. And I'll make the distinction for you here in just a second. While God does not tempt us to sin, God's not the author of evil. He's not tempting us to sin. 
He does test us. Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Same exact word, pirasmos, as translated temptation here in Matthew 6, 13. In this you now rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, same word, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ at his revelation. God does test us. In other words, he doesn't lead us into temptation, but when we are staring temptation right in the face, how do we respond? Do we bite the hook or do we reject the hook? Flee. Flee from the devil. And he will flee from you. Right? There is a testing that takes place there, but God himself does not tempt his children. Here's something else for you to ponder. In his sovereignty, God does use our temptation, though he's not the author of it. He does use our temptation to mold us and to make us uh, look more like Christ. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness before his public ministry began, and then he was tempted again a second time in the garden just hours before his crucifixion, tempted, but he triumphed over temptation and he conquered the impulse to flee from the cross. That was the temptation, right? Jesus, don't don't go to the cross. There must be another another way. Jesus triumphed over temptation. So if the temptations that Jesus encountered helped to shape his life and ministry, they do the same for us. It's through temptations rightly born that we grow in Christ-like character. It's through temptations rightly born. God's not tempting us. He does test us. How are you going to respond when you're you're tempted? Right? So what's going on with the phrase here, lead us not into temptation then? Well, D.A. Carson suggests that Jesus is using a figure of speech here that expresses truth by negating the contrary. Using a literary uh, speech item here that that expresses truth by negating the contrary. Let me give you an example here. Not a few. When we say not a few, what are we saying? We're saying many. When we use the phrase not a few, what we're really saying is many. And so if that's the case and we interpret the text in this manner, Jesus is really teaching us to pray that God would lead us away from temptation and instead into righteousness. The emphasis then is this, Lord, preserve me from temptation when it comes. Preserve me from anything that would bring me under its sway and cause me to fall. And Jesus responds and he says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When you are tempted, he'll provide a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. All right, there's a great promise there, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When did you last pray that God would lead you away from temptation and instead into righteousness? That ought to be a daily part of our prayer life. But deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one here. Our prayers should reflect an understanding that Satan is powerful. The evil one, he's the tempter, he's the liar, he's the murderer, and he has been since the beginning. Matter of fact, Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember that back from Ephesians chapter 2. So what do we learn about ourselves here? We learn that we, in and of ourselves, are powerless to deal with temptation. That's why we ask God to deliver us 
Just as praying deliver us from evil acknowledges the power of the evil one, that we need to be delivered, in the same breath it also acknowledges that God's power is greater. God's power is greater. Let me say just a few brief things here as we land the plane. Some of your Bibles include a doxology that some other of your Bibles may not include here in verse 13. You may see this phrase, verse 13b, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you have the New American Standard, if you have a Holman Christian Study Bible on your lap, if you have a King James Version or a New King, King James Version, you'll see this verse included as a part of verse 13, maybe in brackets next to it there. If you have the ESV or the New International Version, this verse is omitted from the text, and it's instead included in the footnotes. And so the question is, what's going on here? What's going on? Why, why might your Bible have a phrase in it that the person sitting next to you's Bible does not have in it? That's a great question. Here's the answer. The answer is that these words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, these words, they just aren't found in the, most, uh, in the oldest and the most reliable Greek manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. This just simply means that they, are, they likely were not in the original text. We can talk about this more later if you're interested. Uh, but having said that, they're very fitting there. They're very fitting in a text that calls us to hallow the name of God, to pray that God's kingdom or his rule would be manifest and that his will would be accomplished. As a matter of fact, many other passages in the Bible declare uh, these same truths. Ezra's words in 2 Chronicles 29 sound strikingly familiar when Ezra pens, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as the head over all. So, they're in brackets if they're in your Bible. They're just to let you know that they just aren't in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. If they do not appear there in the text, look for a footnote. It's probably in the margin that will tell you the same thing there. Regardless, they are very true words speaking about our God. Matter of fact, friends, I would submit to you that there are 10,000 sermons contained in that one sentence there. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. If I only preached on that verse, I could preach every week on into eternity, just, just dealing with the truths contained in that one sentence. As we bring our study to a conclusion this morning, I'm reminded of the poem that was written by the late William Walford. Probably not a familiar name to you. You can go ahead and close your Bibles. We're done. William Walford, probably not a familiar name. Mr. Walford, he was an aged saint, and he owned a small novelty shop in Colshire, England. He was a blind man, but yet he would sit in his little storefront day by day, carving and polishing little pieces of bone that he would make shoehorns and other useful items that he would sell. As he worked, he would fellowship with the Lord in prayer, sometimes putting his thoughts together to be shared in church on the following Sunday. But one day in 1842, an American pastor named Tom Salmon visited Mr. Walford's little shop in Colshire, England. And apparently, Mr. Walford talked to him about the theme of prayer and the delight that he took in fellowshipping with the Lord in prayer, communing with the Lord in prayer, as he worked there by himself in his little shop. And then he asked American pastor Salmon, would you write down some lines of a particular verse that I've composed? And this is what he wrote. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care 
and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids me seek his face, believe his word, and trust his grace. What a beloved hymn of the faith was written that day. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. That's what Jesus is encouraging us to here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15.